Welcome to the Mini Culture Podcast, a show that explores the untold stories of Minnesota's past and present. I'm your host, John Gebertatios. In the summer of 1965, the Beatles were the hottest act in the world. And for the first and only time, John, Paul, George, and Ringo were coming to Minnesota. From the Beatles press conference upon arrival, to their backstage preparations, to their hotel accommodations, including a very special cup of coffee with John Lennon, Minnesotans reflect on the Beatles' only visit to our home state. Here's producer Britt Ahmet. February 8th, 1964. Only a handful of Americans had ever heard a new musical sensation from Liverpool. Yet by the next day, the entire country knew who they were after their appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. They were the Fab Four, the Fabs, the Mop Tops, the lads from Liverpool, the boys. They were the Beatles. John, Paul, George, and Ringo. They were the biggest act in the land. Overnight, every kid wanted to form a band to be just like them. Boys grew their hair long, girls screamed. No one could explain it, not even the Beatles, but they were a phenomenon, and everybody wanted a piece of them. Their hair clippings, their cigarette stubs, the teacup Paul McCartney pecked with his cupid lips, In that year, 1964, the Beatles toured North America. They hit Milwaukee, Chicago, Detroit, and Toronto. So close. Yet Minnesota fans were denied their night with the Fabs. The closest they'd ever gotten to them was a TV set with a big screen. We just put it around, we're going there. Just so everybody would think we were going there. I'd like to go there. You wouldn't like it. The problem was you couldn't touch screen images. You couldn't hold their hands, which was what the Beatles promised from their first chart-topping American single, and every single after that. They wanted you to love, love them do, to please, please them like they pleased you. Through those little plastic discs played at 45 RPM in your bedroom with the door shut, you felt closer to the Beatles than you ever had to anyone in your life. And now it was summer 1965, a year after the Ed Sullivan appearance, and the Beatles were back on the road with their second North American tour. And this time, for the first and the only time, though no one knew it yet, they were bringing the yeah, yeah, yeah to Minnesota. Minnesota fans were getting their very own Beatles concert. Here's something to mull over. How did the Beatles get to Minnesota? Tell me, uh, how did you find America? So I left to Greenland. That's right. A concert promoter brought them here. Someone whose job it was to spot hot acts and move heaven and earth and cough up some serious dough to get them booked. That man was Raymond Colohan, better known as Big Reggie, the guy with the flashy threads, the Terryton cigarettes, and the friends. He had friends. He had lots of friends. With money. This is Joe Colahan, Big Reggie's son. Joe was a year old when the Beatles brought their trendy boots with the Cuban heels to Minneapolis. But he grew up alongside his larger-than-life dad 
and his stories from his concert promoter days, Big Reggie was the kind of guy who knew how to get things done. He could put the deals together. I mean, if you can put a deal together to buy a bar, you know, you can put a deal together to bring concerts in and run a dance hall. You just know you've got the contacts. He's in the business world, right? Big Reggie had apprenticed under his own father, also called Joe. It was Grandpa Joe who moved the family west from Connecticut when offered a job managing the Excelsior Amusement Park on Lake Minnetonka. He oversaw the park with the Ferris wheel, bumper cars, funhouse, carousel, and dance hall. And that's what attracted Big Reggie. His dad could have the roller coaster. He wanted to manage Danceland Ballroom, which by the early 1960s, thanks to Big Reggie, was drawing teens from the Twin Cities to sleepy Excelsior to dance to the latest music acts. The Stones were there before they got famous. The Rolling Stones played the ballroom June 12, 1964. Apparently the Stones rambled through this gig, which must have seemed like the opposite of making it big in America. A remote dance hall, some kids with glasses, lots of empty space. But don't worry, something good came out of it anyway. The next morning, Mick Jagger walked into the Excelsior drugstore to fill a prescription. At the same time, a local known as Mr. Jimmy went up to the counter and asked for a cherry Coke. When told the store had run out of cherry Coke, Mr. Jimmy replied, Well, you can't always get what you want. The Stones would go on to make a song out of that line. That's the story anyway. Right around this time, though, the Beatles were gearing up for their first North American tour, which did not include a stop in Minnesota. Remember? Back in April 1964, so a couple months before the Stones played Excelsior, and just two months after the Beatles played Ed Sullivan, Big Reggie was given an opportunity to book the Mop Tops and turned it down. At the time, he didn't think the Beatles would draw a crowd. Instead, as we know, he put his money on the Stones. It's hard to imagine now, but back then, everyone thought the Beatles were a passing fad. No one had ever counted on the juggernaut of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Not only were they members of the Beatles, but they were also the songwriting duo behind those infectious hits. Just when you thought they'd run out of ideas, they released another Lennon-McCartney original. It took popular music where it had never gone before. Since when were cuddly teen idols songwriting geniuses? There was hometown boy Bob Dylan, but he wasn't exactly cuddly, was he? Back to Big Reggie Colohan. The concert promoter quickly realized his mistake. So September 5th, 1964, he caught up with the Beatles midway through their first North American tour at their press conference in Chicago, and it was there that he signed a contract with the band's manager, Brian Epstein. And that's how it happened. That's how Big Reggie brought the Beatles to Minnesota in 1965 with a little help from his friends and a nice chunk of change. The Beatles didn't come cheap. It's not the way you smile 
The Beatles touched down at Wold Chamberlain Field in Bloomington, the site of today's Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport, at 4.15 p.m. It was August 21st, 1965, a Saturday, a balmy 66 degrees in the shade, but screaming hot along the cyclone fences. The barriers had been erected overnight to keep the Beatlemaniacs from attacking the four young men who were now coming down the stairs attached to the Electra, a hard-working little plane that had a surprise waiting for the Beatles on their next leg. We'll get to that later. Ringo Starr, the drummer, was first off the plane, sporting a red and white striped shirt. First off meant he was first to be tackled by an adoring fan. Somehow she'd gotten past the cyclone fence, the men in blue, and the last line of defense, the guys with the fire hose. Were they actually planning on using that? John Lennon, singer, rhythm guitarist, and leader of the group, came next. He wore the same striped shirt, but hidden beneath a baggy jacket. Then came Paul McCartney, singer, bass guitarist, and cute beetle. His beaming smile seemed to tell every girl in the crowd that he was looking right at her. Last of all came George Harrison, lead guitarist and frustrated songwriter. The youngest Beatle had only gotten two songs on the band's last album, but then he was up against Lennon and McCartney. So here they were, the Beatles in the flesh in Minnesota. And before anyone else could be tackled, they were shoved into limos and whisked down the road to the press conference. That was held in a small, smoky room at Metropolitan Stadium, the site of that night's concert. I mean, there were a million people trying to get into every nook and cranny of that thing. In 1965, Randy Resnick was a budding guitar player who really wanted to meet the Beatles. So I definitely needed a way to get into that press conference. The Beatles' management had been dealing with Beatlemania in America for a year, but in England since 1962, if not before, they ran a tight ship because they had to. Even sober-minded adults weren't below climbing into windows to get at the boys. Big Reggie Colahan found that out when a package arrived for him. It was from a mother of four. She wrote that she wasn't a fan, but could he please get John Lennon to autograph the enclosed, a pair of underpants? To snag a seat at a Beatles press conference, you had to be a journalist, DJ, or photographer, or you needed an in. Randy's in was his side job at B-Sharp Music, a music instrument store in northeast Minneapolis. It's kind of muddled now whose idea it was, but some B-Sharp employees got together with the owner and came up with a foolproof plan. They would show up to the conference bearing a gift. They were a musical instrument store after all. This, it turned out, was enough to get Randy and at least one more B-Sharp regular, Ron Butwin, in the door at the press conference. Apparently, they must have said, okay, wait your turn and we're going to call you up. They hunkered out of sight while the Beatles went through the motions of yet another press conference in yet another city. They heard all the questions before. People have only had short hair since the First World War. 
So they've been sleeping for all those thousands of years with long hair. I tell you, it's just as much a problem as having short hair. While reporters pelted questions, Paul McCartney toyed with a cigar, maybe a gift from a fan. The other fabs threw off one-liners and gave the scribbler something to write about. They were good at that. But if you watch the video, which you can find on YouTube, you can see that these aren't the fresh-faced, ready-for-anything Beatles who washed up on America's shores a year ago. It seemed like the hustle and bustle was beginning to take a toll on them. Finally, Randy Resnick got the tap. And the funny thing is, I think the funny thing is, when they did call me up, the Beatles all started clapping. So all four Beatles were clapping when I walked up. And you can see that in the, in the video. Were they clapping for him? Or for the brand new 12-string Rickenbacker guitar, which he presented to George Harrison. He was visibly moved. I mean, when you watch the video, they were genuinely moved, and Paul said, what do you got for me? That's great. You got one for me? I wish we had one for everybody. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far. After the press conference, the Beatles didn't have far to go. Just down the hall to a locker room. Met Stadium was a sports stadium, the home of the Minnesota Twins and the Minnesota Vikings. And this brings up a significant change from the Beatles' first U.S. tour. In one year, their popularity had exploded to such an extent that audiences could no longer squeeze into concert halls. So the Beatles had upgraded to sports venues for this tour the first group to ever do so, ushering in the era of arena rock. This is where Minnesota Twins employee Ray Crump comes into the story. He'd been working and earning money since he was 12 years old. He found his way into baseball early, too, getting a job with the Washington Senators. In 1961, when the Senators moved west and became the Minnesota Twins, Ray Crump moved with them and became their equipment manager. He handled all the equipment, like wearing the baseball bats. Andy Crump was Ray's youngest son. Everybody had their own baseball bats, and they had their special model of how they wanted it made, and so he'd negotiate that with the Louisville Slugger to have the bats made, handle all the uniforms and all that, the cleaning of the uniforms and everything to do in the locker room. Ray didn't get paid huge bucks. The real money was in tips from the players, and this equipment manager knew how to look after his team. While he was in spring training in Florida, he'd scoot across the border to Arkansas and load up his station wagon with cartons of cheap cigarettes. And he sold them to the players. Well, if he got a better deal on them, he got to make that much extra money. In the off-season, Ray found work bouncing at a local club. And he was a guy who seemed to run into everybody who was anybody. Later in life, he turned his basement into a gallery filled with photos of Ray with every famous name he'd ever met. Dolly Parton, Wayne Newton, Telly Savalas, Liberace, and the Beatles. The Beatles couldn't have peace and quiet at the hotel because of all the groupies running around and everything. So that's why they ended up going into the clubhouse where he was at. It was a little after 5 p.m. when John, Paul, George, and Ringo ambled into Ray Crump's domain, the Minnesota Twins' locker room. The Beatles had a few hours to kill before the concert. So four cots were rolled in with nice clean sheets and pillowcases and a hot dinner of beef and mashed potatoes. Obviously, a drafty locker room couldn't offer the comforts of a posh hotel, but the Beatles found other ways to relax. They loved the whirlpool that they had there, and they liked the sauna. Brian Epstein, the Beatles' elegant manager, 
had a problem. He needed somebody honest to sell the concert programs. Ray Crump had the solution. And so my dad had the bat boys sell the programs for him, and they only had like 5000 which you would have thought would have been more. And anyways, then they, Epstein took all the money in and then divided it amongst them. All of them. Then they took a roulette wheel, put it on the floor, and played until one of them won all the money. Epstein snapped a photo of Ray Crump with the group. And then it was time for the Beatles to get dressed. And for Ray to get the clubhouse back to its old self. The cots were rolled out, but not before Ray removed the sheets and pillowcases. Everything the Beatles touched was solid gold. Dayton's, the department store, gave my dad $800 for the bedsheets, which was like a lot of money back then. And then they cut it in little splotches and like auctioned it off or had some type of drawing for the little pieces. For the rest of his life, Ray Crump would be asked to share the story of his afternoon with the Beatles. Should anyone doubt him, he had the photo to prove it. At last, it was showtime. The Beatles, now in matching suits, marched towards an opening on their way to the ball field. Forty yards separated the stage from the nearest fans, and that area was patrolled by police. Concert promoter Big Reggie Colhan had rustled up 150 police, not to mention doctors and quantities of smelling salts in case the young fans fainted. Six days before this, the Beatles had launched their tour at New York's Shea Stadium. They'd made history that night, playing for an estimated 55,000 fans, their largest crowd ever. Now, at the Mets Stadium, they were blown away by 25,000 fans and lots of open seats. The Mets' capacity was upwards of 40,000. So what happened? For years, it's been rumored that Big Reggie intentionally undersold the concert. But does his son, Joe Colahan, think about that? Yeah, he did. He was, he was worried that, you know, something bad would happen and people might get hurt, right? Because of how crazy the crowds can be for someone they love something so much like this. He was not playing it up too much. Just like, well, if it's not sold out, that's probably okay. And so that was their only non-sold out show in the U.S. The Beatles weren't used to open seats, but it wasn't like it hadn't happened before. And they got paid whatever the turnout. Truth was, they were more interested in what came after Minnesota and their next stop in Oregon, a five-day vacation in Los Angeles. Think about this. In the life of a Beatle, a vacation was as rare as a bad song. The Minnesota show for the Beatles was just another concert, but it wasn't for their fans. Shirley Clausen Jones traveled all the way from Sioux Falls to see her favorite group, the 16-year-old had even gotten her mom to make a special dress for the occasion. I'd seen a picture of Patty Boyd, that was George's girlfriend at the time, and she was a model, and she had on this black dress, and it had sort of a white organza ruffle around the neck and the sleeves. And my mother is a seamstress. She, she sewed all our clothes, and I showed her what I wanted, and she put together that really cute dress to wear, and I think it wore black pumps or something with it. Shirley had snagged a seat in the sixth row. Maybe George would see her. Overhead, a helicopter circled the open-air stadium. Kids began to chant. 
They unfurled banners. Binoculars passed between friends. There was chit-chat. Was there still time to get something to eat? To use the restroom? Not once Bill Deal, a local DJ, appeared down below. He hollered what he had to say into the microphone, but it was no use. All of a sudden, there they came. They just came running out, and then everybody went really wild. Girls leaped out of their seats, their mouths open, and they just screamed. The Beatles, with their guitars and long hair, raced to the stage at second base. 11-year-old Colleen Shee had only made the trip across town. I went with my friend, Muffy Bromschweig. And we had tickets that were just like the furthest away, you know, way up like the last row at one end. And, you know, you could not really see that much. But it was just so exciting that they were there in our city. We were there sharing the same space. It was just, you know, beyond exciting. They launched into their first song, which was supposed to be Twist and Shout, John Lennon's signature screamer, but the Beatles' front man was nursing a raspy throat, so Paul McCartney stepped up with She's a Woman. Not that Colleen or anyone could tell what it was. And if you read things about the sound system that they were using them, they just had these tiny little speakers. So you really could not hear the music. And then there was just one constant scream going the entire time. The scream lasted 11 songs in a little over 30 minutes, the entire length of the concert. Even before the concert ended, fans had started to gather outside Met Stadium. This particular knot of fans huddled near the idling limos. Any moment now, the Beatles would burst through that door and make a run for the limos. And these guys were ready. Meanwhile, on another side of Met Stadium, a laundry truck pulled away from a service entrance heading north to Minneapolis. A half hour later, the Beatles piled out of that laundry truck, their getaway vehicle, into the basement of the Lemington, their secret overnight hotel. The only trouble was... Hotel management had already let the cat out of the bag. Maybe the hotel was hoping for a little free publicity, and they got it, as well as hordes of scheming fans, four of whom squeezed into trash cans. Their idea was that the hotel kitchen staff would, for whatever reason, decide to carry these overweight trash cans into the hotel's kitchen, where they would sneak away. But they just sat in the cans. Philosophy, the existential philosophers, went to form film. Yeah, I was a pretty serious kid. Susan Stocking was a serious college student and was not into the Beatles. I didn't have a whole lot of time for music. I worked my way through college and I worked three jobs. She also had a college internship with the Minneapolis Tribune, and her editor had given her an assignment get an interview with the Beatles. He imagined that I was a young, tuned in 
who would know all of their music. And I had a very peripheral awareness of the Beatles. How could you not? Even in those days before social media. But I actually had to go to the newspaper morgue, which is the name for the library. And they had little yellow envelopes full of old clippings that someone had scissored out of the paper. And so I went to the librarian and I asked for the Beatles envelope and they gave it to me and I read what I could. This is how you got information back then about the Beatles. And so I went to this with that information only. I had Ringo down and I had John down. And I remember that I, everybody was crazy about Paul, but I didn't like his look so much. (laughs) I I thought John was really handsome. To me, he was the most handsome of the four. Unlike the trash can girls, Susan had found a way into the hotel kitchen and into a waitress uniform because the Beatles' management had let everybody know their boys were not giving interviews in Minneapolis. So I put on this ugly mustard yellow (laughs) uniform with a name Donna Brown, a waitress named Donna Brown. Well, the order finally came in after... 10 p.m. The 20-year-old exited an elevator with a food cart. And they had one medium-rare steak sandwich, two trays of assorted sandwiches, seven glasses of ice water, seven coffee cups, a pot of hot water, one of coffee, a bowl of tea bags, three small pitchers of milk, a dish of sweet pickles and chips. Susan traveled down the hall with the cart to a door, and there stood Ringo Starr. The drummer didn't bat an eye at the waitress uniform. Anyway, he was more interested in the food she'd brought. That tenderloin steak sandwich was the one that Ringo picked up right away. $3.75 you could get a tenderloin sandwich for in those days. The Beatles were seriously famished after a long day of work. Susan checked out the suite. John Lennon was cross-legged on a blue bedspread. He said, half up, I drink it white. Was the clever beetle asking for half coffee, half milk? I was nervous as I would be on almost any assignment. More maybe because it was this kind of clandestine thing that wouldn't be my normal entree. Susan grabbed for a chip from the food cart. and It was only when John went for the coffee pot that Susan remembered that she was the waitress in the room. May I pour, she said. But I do remember my hand shaking as I poured coffee. Nearby, George Harrison held a radio to his ear. He was listening to a DJ giving a recap of that night's concert. Of the four Beatles, only Paul McCartney was missing. It was now or never. I blurted out that I was a reporter and not a waitress. And at that point, I thought I might get thrown out. The three Beatles stared at her. George Harrison broke the ice. A reporter in a waitress uniform, eh? How original. The reporter got to stay. As John, George, and Ringo ate and drank and talked. You know, we were bantering back and forth. And I did ask if they stopped to see the place that they visited. And of course, they never did. Never had time. And John couldn't even remember where he was. How could you? They were being shuttled from one city to the next in laundry trucks and up-back elevators. George and Ringo 
sauntered out of the room fairly quickly. George and Ringo were calling home. That left Susan in the room with John, the smart beetle, known also as the beetle who liked to talk to journalists. He'd written two books himself. He couldn't call home, he told her, because his wife was in Libya visiting her brother. So he was going to give this young journalist something no other journalist was going to get that night, a private interview with a beetle. I think I did tell him that this was my first big newspaper job. <laughs> that could have fed him He must have sensed something about me, I don't know, but maybe it was two introverts in a room, and, you know, introverts do best one-on-one, and there we were. He wasn't guarded, and he was genuine. I regret very much that I didn't know their music. What a much better interview I could have conducted, but it was what it was, and he was most gracious and kind. The interview done... Susan called the newspaper photographer up to the room. She posed in her waitress uniform, pouring John a cup of coffee. I just remember him looking up at me. He's sitting at this table, and he's looking up at me with this big smile on his face while I'm pouring coffee. And then the next thing I remember was as I was getting ready to leave, he said, cheerio now, and let me shake your hand like an Englishman. And he gave my hand a solid shake. Here I stand, head in hand, turn my face to the wall. If she's gone, I can't go on. Feeling too Years later, John Lennon would look back on this time as his fat Elvis period. He put on a few pounds something he tried to hide behind dark colors and baggy jackets. Sad to think, here he was, not even 25 years old, the most famous member of the most famous band in the world. Everybody wanted to get an autograph, touch him, tell him how much they loved him. And there were days John Lennon didn't want to get out of bed. And yet he'd given a precious hour to a college intern with a deadline. Susan Stocking would never forget that. I've always carried with me the kindness of someone who, in his downtime, gave the kid a story, you know? That midnight after the concert, the Minneapolis police called a curfew. Fans under 18 were told to go home. A couple girls said they couldn't leave yet because they were waiting for friends who were in the hotel. With the Beatles, the police went up to check. We had no trouble with three of the Beatles because they had, upon returning from the show at Met Stadium, had gone to the hotel, had had a lunch, and had gone right to bed. That's Donald Dwyer, a Minneapolis police investigator, in an interview that's been circulating online for years. After the Beatles' departure from Minneapolis, he was interviewed by a local TV station about an incident that had happened at the Lemington Hotel that night. We did have trouble, however, with the report of a girl in one of their rooms, that of Paul McCartney. Here was Paul McCartney, famous pop star, young millionaire, who could do anything in the world, including lock himself away in his private hotel room with a girl. But then a knock came at the door, and famous pop star McCartney was told the girl had to go home now. It wasn't that the girl was underage, so what was the problem? Paul McCartney, it turned out, 
was guilty of false hotel registration, which meant he had somebody in the room who was not registered there. The girl departed in a hurry, but the Beatles' entourage was not happy about this interference from the police. One of their uh, group with a British accent told me that they would never come back to Minneapolis, and I remarked to him that if they did not come, it would be too soon for me. And that was it. The night was over. The fans went home. The Beatles went to bed. And the next morning, John, Paul, George, and Ringo hopped on their electric plane, happy to be one day closer to their vacation, and a little worried when the plane's engine caught on fire. Remember, I was going to bring that up. But they made a safe landing in Oregon, met by fire trucks, where they knocked out a couple concerts. And it was after that that they got their five days with nothing to do but lounge poolside at their rented Los Angeles mansion. But back in Minnesota, life went on. Concert promoter Big Reggie Colahan didn't make a killing off the Beatles or any money, who knows. He'd eventually get out of concert booking altogether and in 1984 buy Minneapolis's Uptown Bar and Grill, where he was known to hop on stage with the house band and croon out a favorite song every now and again. And according to his son, Joe, just enjoy the ride that was life. He loved driving around in a Lincoln with the suicide doors, you know, the JFK-style car with a soft top on there, and his license plate said Reggie. Newspaper intern Susan Stocking got her story in the paper. Two pages and a snappy shot of her turn as a hotel waitress. Ray Crump continued as Twins' equipment manager, What about the guitar B-sharp music gave George Harrison? George actually used it to record his song, If I Needed Someone, for the album Rubber Soul. It wasn't the strongest song on the album, yet by the time the group recorded its final album four years later, George, the frustrated songwriter, was crafting songs that were as good, if not better, than anything Lennon and McCartney were producing. And the Beatles never did play Minneapolis or anywhere in Minnesota again. They stopped touring in August 1966 to get away from the craziness and to focus on their studio recording. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say, their very last concert was an informal jam atop the Apple headquarters building in London in January of 1969. And a little over a year after that, the biggest band in the world broke up. The Minnesota fans got older, but they never forgot the day in August 1965 when the Beatles played Met Stadium. Shirley Clausen Jones, who sat in the sixth row in her handmade black dress, still has the ticket stub. It just says August 21st, 1965, no refunds, rain or shine. And the price was actually $5.09. All these years later, the Beatles are now a piece of history, proving that nothing lasts forever. And, and a lot of generations, I meet young people today that they're Beatles fans. 
and I tell them I've gone, and I make a copy of my ticket stub for them so they can see, you know, and, you know, they, it's really nice that they're, they're still appreciated. And they are. They're still around. Their music is still around. Maybe some things do last. For KFEI, this is Britt Amit. Support for Miniculture on KFAI has been provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Season 7 of the Miniculture Podcast is edited and executive produced by Julie Sensulo. I'm your host, John Gibertatios, and thanks for listening.